Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. By the end of the 70s, gay men were starting to see themselves and their friends get sick in ways they didn't understand. We didn't know what it was. Uh, We didn't even know it was a virus. We just knew that people were getting sick in ways they shouldn't be getting sick and were dying of things that uh, should have been curable. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Dhruv. On this edition of Outcasting, youth participant Lauren talks with Ann Northrup, a journalist and activist, about activism surrounding the AIDS epidemic. We talk about her work in ACT UP, a direct action advocacy group that worked to improve the lives of people living with AIDS. We discuss the many areas of life that the AIDS epidemic affected, the responses of the government and of the public, and the long-lasting impacts of the epidemic. This is the first part of a two-part series. Anne, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Anne. You were involved with activist movements before the AIDS epidemic. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I come from a fairly uh, standard conservative uh, Republican background, uh, the sort of classic New England Republicans who don't exist anymore, I guess. So I had a great curiosity about the world, too, and but some, some conservative leanings. But I watched the civil rights movement on television. I watched protesters in the South getting attacked by dogs and fire hoses and uh, marching in the streets demanding justice and equal rights. And that actually appealed to my sense of truth and justice that I had been taught in my Republican household. And I also started watching things like Senate hearings on the Vietnam War in the early days. And and that was <laughs> certainly educational and pretty appalling to hear what our government was doing. And then I went off to college, and that was at the height of the Vietnam War. And I very quickly became radicalized. And speakers would come to campus and tell us about atrocities in Vietnam, I'd read the New York Times every day and and discover a world that I hadn't really understood before. And so soon I was marching in the street with all my uh, classmates uh, against the war and feeling quite passionate about it and feeling really that my mind and heart were changing and becoming much more radical in in many ways. Coming out of college, I came right smack into the middle of the uh, revival of the feminist movement in the 70s. And that I got even more deeply involved in. I wrote for Ms. Magazine. I marched in the first big feminist march in New York and on Women's Equality Day in August of 1970 and continued to work uh, pretty hard in the feminist movement for years, and then went off to do my professional journalism career. 
in the 80s, I left mainstream journalism. I walked away from CBS News because I was finding it so stupid. And I went to work as an AIDS educator and educator on homosexuality to teenagers in the New York area. One of the earliest articles in the mainstream media about what became known as HIV AIDS was in the New York Times in July 1981. What was the sense among LGBTQ people in the years before then? In the years before 1981, uh, the, the 70s were a very particular time because, uh, don't forget, Stonewall was 1969. There were some actions before then, too. But the movement for freedom and justice was very young at that point. And it was just after Stonewall in the 70s that uh, people felt a sense of freedom and liberation. So the 70s were evidently a pretty wild time. I was just coming out in the middle of that and actually with my first girlfriend and her two kids on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So I was more of a PTA mom at that point than a crazy liberationist. But it was a great sense of freedom in the 70s and discovery and joy and celebration. But by the end of the 70s, gay men were starting to see themselves and their friends get sick in ways they didn't understand. Uh, so when the report came out in 1981, it began to explain what they had already seen uh, before their eyes for several years. What was it like in those first few years afterward? Well, when it finally got started to get observed and named and labeled and investigated, it was terrifying uh, because it confirmed what people had started to see. So certainly every gay man I knew, and I was working at CBS News at the time, and uh, there were certainly gay men there. One in particular who was a very close friend of mine was just terrified all day long every day. It was all he talked about. And I think that was generally true in the community because first, we didn't know what it was. Uh, we didn't even know it was a virus. We just knew that people were getting sick in ways they shouldn't be getting sick and were dying of things that uh, should have been curable. Uh, and there were all these wild rumors going around. There were, uh, you know, they would try desperately to identify cohorts of people who were getting this illness uh, in an attempt to define it. So at one point it was Haitians. At another point it was nuns because they discovered a group of nuns who were sick. But the New York City uh, Health Department, uh, a few years into this, had to go back and reclassify about 10,000 deaths of uh, poor and homeless people who they had just thought, well, they're poor and homeless, they got pneumonia, they died. It hadn't occurred to them until this became identified that uh, it was an actual virus spreading. So there was great confusion and great terror for several years because it took several years to pin this down as a virus and to figure out how it was communicated between people. You know, there was all the stigma and panic about touching people with HIV. We didn't even know about HIV at the time, but just people who were sick. People didn't want to touch them. People didn't want to be in the same room with them. They were afraid it was spread through the air. They were 
they wouldn't eat off the same plates. Uh, it was uh, people were who were sick were just getting rejected by their families and by society in general. Hospitals would uh, quarantine them in ways that were completely inappropriate, but they just didn't know any better because they didn't know what was going on. But there was a lot of cruelty to uh, people who were sick, uh, and and all because of the terror of not knowing. What specifically got you involved with AIDS activism? I had come out of mainstream journalism. I had worked at ABC at Good Morning America. I had worked at the CBS Morning News in the 80s, and I quit uh, CBS in 1987 because I just thought it was getting stupider and stupider and and therefore it wasn't interesting to me and it was in fact kind of shameful to be part of that. So I decided that there had to be some place in the world I could be happier working and I quit. And I walked out without any real idea of what I was going to do. And I just started talking to people about uh, various ideas and what it was I was looking for. And someone finally suggested that I check out what is now the Hetrick Martin Institute for Lesbian and Gay Youth. And I went down there to talk to people. And I said, uh, you know, I'd love to run a sports program here. <laughs> And they just okay. almost laughed me out of the place. But they said, uh, we have a contract from the City Department of Health to do advocacy for AIDS education in the schools. And so we're starting this education department, and we think you would be good for this. And I said, well, you know, I it's now 1987. I have certainly been covering the epidemic in one way or another at these mainstream jobs since it was first uh, written about in 1981, but I really don't know that much about it. And they said, oh, don't worry, don't worry, it'll, it'll be fine. So I signed up and I went to work there and they immediately sent me to classes. They sent me to Department of Health classes on how to be a sex educator. They sent me to classes at Gay Men's Health Crisis about the AIDS epidemic. And it was utterly fascinating to me to realize how little I knew as a journalist and how much there was to learn. And what I learned was that everything that was going on with the HIV AIDS epidemic was exactly what I had seen in watching the civil rights movement, marching against the Vietnam War, working as a feminist. It was all about the power structure. And with AIDS, it was sort of the nth degree of the government knowing that there was an illness out there and not being willing to do anything about it. We used to make comparisons about how uh, there had been this outbreak of Legionnaire's disease in Philadelphia, I think, and 23 people got sick. And the entire weight of the federal government was put into figuring out how to fix this immediately. But when gay men and homeless people and people of color and uh, injection drug users were getting sick and dying by first the hundreds and then the thousands and then the tens of thousands, 
the government did nothing. The president wouldn't even talk about it. Uh, the money was not there for research, and uh, the stigma was allowed to continue. And it was it was a genocide uh, of those who were getting sick. Now that was extremely compelling to me because it was the the political angle. And that is actually what took me to act up. That and the fact that as a lesbian, this was my community. And so it felt even closer, even more important than all the other movements I'd been involved in, each of which felt very intimate and important to me. But this really was just that much more uh, compelling. So I, when someone told me about ACT UP, I decided to check it out. And I knew within 30 seconds of walking into my first ACT UP meeting that that was exactly where I needed to be. But for me, it was as much the politics and the personal issues about uh, being a lesbian that made it important to me. It wasn't because I uh, lost uh, close friends or or any of that kind of personal connection, although that certainly then came because then I knew everybody. But uh, it was the political angle that really drew me in. What drew LGBTQ women especially into AIDS activism? Well, don't forget that I was working at Hetrick Martin. I was going out into the schools uh, teaching about homosexuality. I didn't feel uh, (laughs) any more than I do on a daily basis any particular separation uh, between, you know, I'm not a separatist. Yeah. Uh, I have my own questions about men, but uh, I have worked with men all my life. I grew up with four brothers. I had two stepsons. I I don't uh, avoid men. Uh, And I identify with uh, an LGBT community, which includes everybody. So my job at Hetrick Martin was, uh, first of all, to go out and teach about HIV and AIDS to teenagers and the professionals who work with teenagers. But it took us uh, very little time to realize that a barrier to doing that education was homophobia and that we couldn't just go out and do AIDS education. We had to deal directly with the homophobia of the students and the professionals before we could even get to a discussion of HIV and AIDS. So we developed a little uh, routine about how to teach about homosexuality and go into classrooms as a male-female team. Uh, You know, hi, I'm your local lesbian, ask me anything. (laughs) So I was very connected to the idea of uh, talking to the world about these issues. And I brought that into the room at ACT UP uh, as a very necessary part of how we were going to conduct activism on HIV and AIDS. And attacking homophobia was certainly a major part of what ACT UP did, too. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcasting youth participant Lauren is talking with Anne Northrup, a journalist and activist, about activism surrounding the AIDS epidemic. The author, historian, and activist Vito Russo said that living with AIDS is like living through a war which is happening only for those people who happen to be in the trenches. 
What were the difficulties of those living with AIDS beyond having a terminal illness? Well, there's a long list of things that people faced, uh, but stigma, ignorance, uh, cruelty, I would say we're at the top of the list, uh, aside from opportunistic infections and all the daily drudgery of having to try to cope with a truly life-threatening illness that was uh, very fatal for many people for many years. But it's an interesting statement by Vito, who I knew well, Mm -hmm. uh, because in fact, while we were totally immersed in the epidemic and its issues and obsessed with it on a daily basis, for a great deal of the world, uh, we were just invisible because it was sort of roped off mentally by the rest of the world as those people. And so they exonerated themselves from having to pay attention. One reason we adopted such a confrontational approach in doing AIDS activism was to get people to pay attention. Because if we had just sat back and been sort of nice about what we were doing, uh, we'd have gotten nowhere. No one would have paid attention. It makes me very interested in the current debates about whether Democrats or people on the left should be confronting Trump and those who work for him in public directly. And having lived through the AIDS crisis and knowing what direct confrontation can accomplish, I'm very tempted by that approach. And I think to sit back and say, oh, you know, we have to be nice. We can't sink to their level. We can't If we are unlikable, that will hurt us. I think there are some real questions to be asked about that. One of our mottos in ACT UP was that we did not expect to be liked. We needed to be directly confrontational. We needed to upset people. We needed to stop business as usual in order to get people to pay attention and do something about the epidemic because our problem was that we didn't think the government or uh, the pharmaceutical companies or the medical profession were doing enough to save people's lives. Uh, So all of that was because of the stigma that people faced uh, and the downright ignorance. Having come out of mainstream journalism where I had supposedly been covering the epidemic for six years before I went to work in the community, I knew how profoundly ignorant uh, the news media were about these issues. So it was clear to me that we had to fight very hard to be paid attention to and to get any action. And a lot of the people who were sick were too sick to fight. So those who could did, and uh, that was our approach. One thing that struck me a lot when I watched the documentary United in Anger about ACT UP was that um, how many different parts of life the AIDS epidemic affected. Like housing discrimination was an issue. I never would have thought that that would be an issue for people with an illness, but in this kind of situation, that's what happened. Housing discrimination was a big one because when you have the terror of 
people not knowing how the that it is a virus and that the virus is communicated only with great difficulty, then landlords don't want you, quote, contaminating, unquote, their uh, apartments. So they don't want you living there. And if you are living there and you become sick, the first thing they want to do is throw you out. So housing was a really, really important issue and still is. Mm -hmm. And ACT UP had many different committees dealing with all these different issues. Insurance was an issue. We had an insurance committee. There were scores of different committees. The housing committee eventually decided to professionalize itself and became a nonprofit called Housing Works that exists to this day and is a very major agency Uh, providing housing for people living with HIV and AIDS. That came out of activists in ACT UP who are still running the place two dozen years later. We had to take responsibility for these issues ourselves because others would not. But there were crucial issues in how people live their everyday lives that hit roadblocks at every step of the way. And we had to go out and help them. How hospitals treated patients, uh, how government agencies processed their uh, needs. It it was just endless. Marriage equality is obviously relatively new. How did the lack of legal status for gay couples at the time act as a barrier for infected men and their partners? It's interesting that you say marriage equality is relatively new. Of course it is. Uh, But did you know that the first couples who uh, got themselves legally married in this country were, in fact, in the 1960s and 70s when uh, a few rogue same-sex couples uh, found states where there was not an actual prohibition against it? And, of course, there are those who say that the Catholic Church was performing ceremonies of union for some of its uh, priests in same-sex couples thousands of years ago or a couple thousand years ago. So it's not an entirely new concept, but I digress. The lack of access to legal rights for same-sex couples was a huge obstacle for people living with HIV and AIDS. They could not inherit. They could not... uh, take care of each other's uh, medical needs. They couldn't make decisions for each other. They couldn't hold on to apartments when one died. They were rejected by their spouse, their you know partner's family, uh, and who would come in and take all the uh, dead person's belongings, leaving the uh, and kicking out the surviving partner from the apartment. It, it was just cruelty after cruelty and cruelty from the government that wouldn't recognize these relationships. I'd never heard that about same-sex couples in the 60s in states where there was no law against it, but that's really interesting. Uh, Boulder, Colorado, there's a very famous case, and uh, Wisconsin, uh, there's a case when there were some, uh, there was a clerk in Boulder who realized that the law did not explicitly prohibit it, and she was quite bold in handing out a few marriage licenses. Those were later invalidated, but one of the couples sued, and that case went on for quite a long time. Uh, look it up. It's all an interesting history. 
So we've been talking uh, about ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was started in 1987. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the actions that ACT UP did? <laughs> we could be here all night. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, or, or more in general, what purpose the group had? Well, there was a very deliberate sequence to planning actions. And the first was to identify an issue. We would have weekly meetings at the LGBT Community Center on West 13th Street in Manhattan. And when I joined the group uh, a little less, when it was a little less than a year old, there were about 200 people a week coming to meetings. Uh, we got to a point where we had as many as 600 people a week showing up. That is actual human beings coming to a weekly meeting uh, every week, uh, which does not happen anymore with the internet. We were kind of lucky to be doing this before the internet, before, uh, real, uh, widespread computer use, certainly before cell phones. Imagine communicating <laughs> before cell phones and the internet. <laughs> we would actually go to copy shops. <laughs> Uh, so, and use telephones to talk to each other, uh, landlines. Um, so we would start at a meeting with, uh, an issue. Someone would raise an issue and they'd say, this terrible thing is happening out there. And we would all say, okay, tell us more about it. And they would have researched it. And so they'd get up at the front of the room and we'd have a very open discussion about, all right, what's going on? And people would ask questions and until we felt we really understood the issue. And then we would talk about, all right, what needs to happen? Uh, and we would figure out a goal. What was it that we wanted to have happen? And then we would go to the uh, agency involved. If we wanted something to happen, say, in the realm of housing or drug research or something, we'd figure out who the target is. All right, we want this government agency to change its rules about uh, making housing available to poor people with HIV. And so the first thing we would do is we would call up that agency and we'd say, we want to meet with you to talk about this because we think there's something wrong and we think it needs to be changed and we'd like to discuss that with you. And if they were willing to talk about it, great. We went in and talked to them and tried to uh, negotiate an answer that we thought was satisfactory. But if they wouldn't talk to us or they wouldn't do what we wanted them to do, then we would start planning an action. And the basic idea of an action is to forcefully encourage someone to do something you want them to do. Uh, that can be done through public shaming. Well, that's the basic idea. If you're going to do a public demonstration, you're trying to draw the public's attention to this issue and make the agency or company or whomever do what you think is right by exposing this issue to the public. So that's why you do an action and when you do an action. Thanks, Sam. We've run out of time, so we'll have to leave it there for now and pick it up on the next edition of Outcasting. Anne Northrup is a journalist and activist. She was an AIDS educator and a member of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. She's the co-host of Gay USA, TV's weekly LGBT news hour. 
She joined us from her home in Manhattan. Anne, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lauren. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This was the first part of a two-part series. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Lauren, Alex, Andrea, Dante, Griffin, Julia, Max, Sophie, Quinn, Nico, Lucas, and me, Druve. Our assistant producer is Josh Valley, and our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Drew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.